On Guido Talks this week, Labour MPs refuse to condemn violent protesters. Nicola Sturgeon clings onto power by the skin of her teeth. And Sadiq Khan's architecture guru gets offended by Georgian houses. All that and more this week on Guido Talks. Stick about. Hello and welcome to the season finale of Guido Talks. My name's Tom Harwood and once again I'm joined by Guido Fawkes founder and editor Paul Staines as well as reporter Christian Calgi. So it's been a busy week and recess hit us on Thursday but that didn't stop the week of news rolling on. Shall we start off by one of the larger stories of this week uh, that was over the protests that kicked off in Bristol very violently. Calgi, can you talk us through this? Yes, well some... Some might say protests, others might say riots, but uh, either way, there was, uh, you know, serious uh, uh, outrage over the uh, police and crime bill that had been manifesting over the previous week on Sunday night. It peaked in Bristol, where we saw a fire, a police van uh, set on fire and a station smashed up and police officers injured. Uh, We thought on Monday that we would take a look through uh, the list of MPs who had been encouraging these protests. And what we found was not only the list of usual far-left suspects, uh, Claudia Webb, Zara Sultana, Richard Bergen, uh, encouraging those using this kill-the-bill language, which of course has a double meaning, quite a dark double meaning, but really laying in and being very provocative in a way that I think we all imagine if the right uh, was uh, weaponising this sort of language. Uh, We had, you know, it's not the politicians the government fears, it's you, the words fight and all these things. Uh, They've been weaponised and they've been persuading people to take to the streets and lo and behold, these scenes occur on uh, Sunday night. There was very little contrition, as we saw from Nadia Whittam uh, on Politics Live on Monday. She was directly asked, would you like to take this opportunity to condemn the violence? And uh, she said, obviously, we don't want to see anyone getting hurt, but it's too early uh, to get into criticising anyone involved. Um, You know, classic uh, disaster hard left politics played out appallingly. No one was impressed, let alone the Shadow Home Secretary and Keir Starmer. The, the hashtag kill the bill was deliberately ambiguous. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't much of a wolf whistle. It was clear, deliberate. When, you, when they're chanting kill the bill outside a police station and setting fire to police cars, I don't think people had in mind an act of parliament. I mean, you can't sit back and say... That, what, that, that we don't know who was to blame here. Everything about what Nadia Whittam said on Politics Live had the hallmarks of when Jeremy Corbyn said that, oh, he blamed both sides whenever there was a terrorist atrocity, or even the hallmarks of Donald Trump standing at Charlottesville saying there were very fine people on both sides. No, one side was full of terrorists, one side was full of people who broke the arms of policemen, who punctured a lung, who set cars on fire, and one side was trying to stop that. This seems incredibly clear. You only need to look at these videos to see which side was perpetuating violence but it's quite clear that Nadia Whittam uh, has this both sides mentality very odd I quite like Nadia Whittam's statement because it came very very close to saying all lives matter Um, but there's also a wider comparison of course between what these MPs were saying 
uh, about Trump when obviously he essentially refused to tell the DC protesters to stand down. Uh, we even had, I think, Claudia Webb on record as saying that Trump had, in, had mobilised fascists to attack democracy, with his words. And of course, there was that absurd uh, concocted row uh, back in 2019, I think it was, when you had all these Labour MPs accusing Boris of uh, ramping up violence because of the language he was using. Uh, yet, for some reason, they don't have to keep their own language in check because it's only a, it's only a right-wing thing, apparently. Yeah, this is the thing. I think it's, it's absolutely fine to say, oh, I want to fight for my cause. There's obviously nothing wrong with saying that. But if you're someone who's accused the other side of saying, I want to fight for my cause, and that's horrible, um, violent language, and that's going to encourage violence, you can't then do it yourself. It's the hypocrisy here that is the key point, that is the blatantly uh, wrong uh, course of action for them to take, uh, and, and not so much the actual words being used. Because, of course, we use... I mean, the word campaign in political campaigns comes from war. I mean, a lot of uh, political language is militaristic, but if you condemn that language, you can't then go about and use it yourself. There were mixed messages coming out of Holyrood in Scotland or early this week, as we heard first the Hamilton inquiry conclude that there was not enough evidence to say that Nicola Sturgeon had broken the ministerial code. But then only the next day, we heard uh, MSPs come to the conclusion on that committee that she may well have broken that code. And that led that the Scottish Conservatives to push forward their uh, vote of no confidence in Nicola Sturgeon. But as a result of the Hamilton inquiry findings, the Lib Dems and the SNP abstained, not and the SMD, uh, the Lib Dems and the Labour Party abstained on that motion, meaning that it was only the Tories and actually Reform UK voting no confidence in Nicola Sturgeon, meaning she sailed through very, very easily and lives on to fight another day. I think there are a lot of raised eyebrows here, aren't there? Because uh, there were certainly questions hanging over the independence of the Hamilton inquiry, his relationship to the SNP, and how do you weigh that up against a committee which is more politically balanced, should theoretically have a sort of pro-independence majority, but found against Sturgeon. There was sort of something for every political argument and persuasion to pick up as an attack line and uh, beat their oppositions around the head with <laughs> Ultimately, this was just a big mess that no one's really come away with a clear conclusion. To some extent, I think that the SNP can take a political victory away with this. They got the headline, they want Nicola Sturgeon lives on to fight another day. But I think as we've discussed in many podcasts before, we weren't expecting Nicola Sturgeon to resign as First Minister off the back of this. What we were expecting is some of the shine to come off. And I think that that's probably still true. We haven't yet seen a poll that has put independence ahead of unionism in, in Scotland um, for, for, a, for a good month or two. And I'd be surprised if there was another one to come out later next month. That was certainly, I think, the best the Tories could hope for was that there was uh, the, the Scottish public were left with a general sense that the wheels were starting to come off, the shine of professionalism, there was this infighting, which actually we see a, a hell of a lot in these sort of one-party mini-states where things have been, you know, one party's ruled the roost for a very long time and eventually they forget about their uh, external political opponents and they become entirely focused on internal party politics and it, it you know, it turns a lot of people off. Uh, but it's not the only part of the UK 
uh, that is facing a very exciting uh, election in May as a bombshell uh, poll in Wales uh, is projecting Mark Drakeford to lose his seat. Uh, this came through earlier in the week and you see an incredible tightening of what's happening uh, where you've got Labour only 2% ahead of the Tories and the Tories now only uh, about 7% ahead of Plaid Cymru and that sort of double pincer movement uh, is going to impact Labour a lot. They're going to lose uh, I think about seven seats uh, and you've got also I'm very excited to possibly see the abolish the assembly party uh, is projected to win four seats and they should make the next assembly particularly interesting. Now, of course, some of the people on that Abolish the Assembly ticket are already in the Assembly. They got elected on the UKIP ticket back in 2016. That's when the last elections were. So people like uh, Mark Reckless, uh, formerly, of course, Conservative MP, then UKIP MP, then UKIP member of the uh, Assembly in Wales, <laughs> we should be calling it the Senate, then reform... No, then he was Brexit Party, and then he became... Uh, abolish the Welsh Assembly Party. It's been quite the political journey, but it looks like, according to this poll, he could be back in again. Whoever wins the election, we might want to take a look at Nation Cymru, which is uh, an English-language website financed by the Welsh Government, which you'd imagine would mean that there were some restrictions on what it could do, but it does news reporting, and it has, according to the analysis that we've seen, and on your screens now, they're mostly stories which attack the Tories, which if you're taking public money seems to be a stretch. You might consider it to be part of the Labour Party's budget. This is a typically corrupt little move. You know, a government agency handing out taxpayers' money in a one-party state fiefdom. We've seen it in Scotland where, where Nicola Sturgeon's speeches were published by uh, uh, a Scottish uh, Arts Council uh, organization, funded organization, uh, to the tune of hundreds of thousands. And I'm not sure how well her speeches are going to sell, but it doesn't matter whether the Scottish taxpayer is paying for it. I think that these agencies need to have a serious looking at by the national government in Westminster because we have, to all intents and purposes, corrupt funding of politics by the taxpayer in these one party states. The largest of all the devolved elections taking place on May the 6th is, of course, London. About 10 million people are uh, living in that area compared to, what is it, about 5 million in Scotland, 3 million in Wales, in Birmingham, in Manchester, in all of those places. London is the biggest electorate on that day. And so, surely this should be the most exciting election. Probably not. The debate between the two leading contenders, Sadiq Khan and Sean Bailey, took place on Wednesday night and basically no one tuned in. <laughs> However, we on Keto Forks managed to uh, retrieve a clip from that debate um, to show you uh, some of the character of the people involved. Let's take a look. It's a snapshot that we've uh, achieved today, but let's just get a, a final kind of thought. Do you guys, I mean, we're getting on famously, of course, but do you... Do you like each other? I mean, do you have respect for each other? You know each other a bit, the London Assembly and the Mayor? Who's going to answer that one first? For me, it's not personal. Of course, I respect Sadiq. He's got a big job. He's the Mayor of London. He has things to do. I respect all of my colleagues. One of the great things about the London Assembly is how collegiate we work. I've got to be honest, some of the things Sean has said about, uh, uh, about Eid, about Diwali, about women, about girls, about multiculturalism, about those that receive benefits, uh, I get deeply upset by. 
They're not my values, okay. they're not loan values, and I hope uh, loaners reject those values in May the 6th. And the most interesting thing about that point is it's not an unpredictable question. This is something that is asked uh, very often in different political debates. You know, say something nice about the person opposite you. What do you most admire in the person opposite you? It was asked of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. It was asked of uh, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson. It was asked of Dave, uh, Ed Miliband and David Cameron. Uh, and they all managed to find at least something nice to say about the other person, but not Sadiq Khan. Sadiq Khan just launched into a pre-prepared attack line against his opponent at the time at which they were supposed to be being magnanimous and bringing London together. Well, at the very, like at the very least, at the very least, he could have said the old standby answer, which is a double-edged sword, which is, may the best man win. You know, particularly when he's ahead by a lone chalk. You know, that would be you know, grace. Grace, we'd have some grace about it, even if it was a, 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 an insult. I, I, I'm trying to think while Tom was speaking there. I'm trying to find something you respect about Sean Bailey. I mean, that is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. That is a difficult You can say he tries job. very hard. I think, well, I mean, if I was Sadiq Khan, you know, it's sort of like, thank you for handing me the election on a plate. It's basically the best thing you can say. I'd admire his, uh, his workout and physique and uh, fitness routines. I appreciate the way he goes out and every day takes a hammering from the press and his own party and still gets dressed in the morning uh, without any shame whatsoever. See, that's sure a cutting remark, but at least, it's, at least it sounds like you're being um, somewhat um, nice towards the question. I mean, he just ignored the question was the, was the biggest thing. Isn't this guy supposed to be like a really slick debater, Sadiq Khan I'm talking about, of course? Isn't he supposed to be someone who can sort of mould the media? Uh, and, and yet he just ignored the question and launched into some sort of big attack. I mean, it's a very, very odd way to conduct a debate, but I suppose... The calculation here is that no one is watching the debate. No one is listening to the questions. <laughs> it's just a nice little snippet that he can take for himself and put on social media. Says something about the man, though, doesn't it? And I can foresee a situation, say, in 2025, where Sadiq is in running to be leader of the Labour Party. You know, he'll be the most powerful uh, uh, national figure because Labour are on course to lose that election. Uh, it's it's a one to watch. Uh, unsurprisingly, given the minuscule presumably viewing figures of the debate this week uh, the largest Sadiq Khan uh, piece of news that we offered viewers and readers this week was that uh, his design advocate has taken to slamming Georgian architecture as being colonialist and oppressive. Uh, these were tweets that had been uh, missed by uh, many people, uh, but uh, his design advocate, don't know why he needs one, but Dina Bornat, uh, came out with these bizarre tweets uh, and uh, was saying all sorts of things about how, how it's uh, oppressive and uh, uh, racist and the style harks back to the Roman Empire. Uh, it's almost, you know, where do you even go from that? I think it explains a lot of London's design choices in recent years. I know Tom and I have serious disagreements over, for example, Nine Elms. I think this perfectly explains that uh, whole area's existence. Strange when you think about how many Labour lovies live in Islington, which is an epicentre for Georgian architecture and their very <laughs> desirable uh, properties. 
I mean, the most funny thing about this back and forth on Twitter that this design advocate, the mayor's official design advocate, got involved in is that someone replied to her saying, Sorry, is this a joke? Are you are you joking? I can't tell. <laughs> because it was because it was so peculiar the way that she was sort of saying, "No, I think we need to be very careful about uh, building in effect beautiful buildings because it does look a bit colonial." I'm sorry, what? You want the buildings to be vile? You want us to be self-flagellating <laughs> in the face of our city because oh, the country might have done some questionable things in the past, therefore we must all live in misery and ugly buildings today. I mean, what sort of philosophy is that? And why on earth has this person been able to get into this position with next to no scrutiny whatsoever. Uh, we, we we did a subsequent uh, article, which obviously uh, listeners rather than viewers won't be able to see. They'll have to visit the, uh, the the article itself to see some examples of what Mrs. Bolnap believes is the sort of progressive and egalitarian architecture that the city should strive for. Uh, I'm personally uh, not a fan, but I think my absolute favourite comment from Dina Bornat uh, was just a couple of days later uh, when she started attacking a new alfresco seating plaza on the King's Road in Chelsea. There were going to be hundreds of new outdoor seating chairs and apparently, and please do get in touch if you can work this one out for me, this free outdoor seating is, go- is going to be elitist and exclusionary. And I would suggest that free outdoor seating is possibly the only example of things to do in London that is neither of those two things. I think we should take a second just for people who are listening to talk about one of the uh, concepts that she uh, boasts as being one of her favourite designs, which is a building (laughs) with completely clear concrete walls so that people can graffiti them. That, that, that's a feature, not a, not a nag towards her, her perfect design. She, she would love to see big, grey, concrete walls covered in graffiti. That's her perfect building. It tells you a lot about what we're seeing the London housing strategy heading towards. One story that I think we're the only outlet covering is the changes that are going on at the Daily Express. Now, the Daily Express was taken over by the Mirror Group, and the combined operation is now called Reach PLC, but it's basically a mirror group dominated organization. So much so that when the takeover was being carried out, Mirror had to promise DCMS, uh, at the time the minister was Matt Hancock, that they would not change the political outlook of the Express papers, the Express, Sunday Express, uh, Star and Star on Sunday. So it's been interesting to watch the gradual mutation of the Express into a caricature of what um, the Mirror executives think is a Brexit-loving, traditionalist, conservative newspaper. They have introduced a new environmental section, which is uh, uh, eco-campaigning. It seems that whenever a merger was going to happen between uh, sections, say the entertainment section, the Mirror journalists kept their jobs and the Express journalists lost theirs. Now, that is fine, but when it comes to the politics, there is a commitment there that they shouldn't change. Now, executives have tell me at the Express that they've been called in to do a brand review. And the, the direction that it's going suggests that perhaps the old crusader that's been on the front of the Express for, well, since I've been around and since I think the post-war period, uh, is outdated and perhaps, you know, a little bit well, Islamophobic, maybe. Uh, certainly not woke. So how would they feel about it and how does it represent the Express's brand? 
This is only the second round of um, questions where they asked the executives at the Express to think about brand leaders, brands and leaders, and what they mean and what they mean in terms of the Express. And one of the brands or leaders that they were asked to consider was Karl Marx. So we uh, mocked this up for viewers on YouTube. You can see Karl Marx replacing the Crusader on the masthead of the Express. And now comes the time in the show that we know the audience loves to see. It's the regular feature we like to call expert activists. For those of you who don't know what an expert activist is, it's when you see someone who's a teacher or a doctor or a nurse or any sort of profession on TV giving sort of the industry view, but it turns out that unbeknownst to the viewer, this person's actually high up in a union or a former political party candidate or a member of a political party putting across political points rather than the sort of everyday man or woman on the street that sometimes broadcasters like to present them as. There's a huge litany of these, of examples of these, on the Guido Fawkes website, and we do encourage you, uh, if you see anyone who sounds a bit like they're speaking party political points rather than everyday points, from left or right, do get in touch with us at team at orderorder.com, that's our email, uh, and we'll see if we can do any more of these in the future. The reason I'm talking about this is we had one this week. The person who popped up on the Today programme, a hugely listened to programme, in the morning, in the peak slot, 8.10am, we had had a Syrian refugee living in this country uh, come up before Priti Patel to slam the Tories and Priti Patel's migration reform, which would open up more legal routes to migration and clamp down on illegal migrants. Now, that's a position, I think it's quite a fair position, actually. I think there's a, there's a lot of reasoned discussion you can have on about it. Um, and it would make sense to have a Labour Party person up and a Tory person up discussing it. However, what they had was a Syrian refugee discussing it who seemed to be very obsessed with slamming the Tories. Um, but we found out, after the slightest bit of research, that this is actually someone who is a Labour Party member, who uh, has campaigned digitally for the Labour Party, not that any of this was mentioned to the BBC audience. Now, I want to stress, uh, this Syrian refugee has absolutely every right to be on TV. I think it's important that we hear all perspectives on TV. I think that the, the, the debate is the best way that we can get to the truth of something, and absolutely we should hear voices from left and right. However, if you're introducing the voice on the left as just sort of an ordinary person and the voice on the right as the Home Secretary, there's an imbalance there in terms of the service you're doing to your viewers. So it's very, very important that the BBC needs to say, this is uh, our Syrian refugee. He's a member of the Labour Party and he's going to be uh, discussing the Tory plan. Hassan Akkad. Just give us more context. That's his name. <laughs> and we, we we got a we got a further whopper that uh, later that day when uh, uh, Sky News also invited someone on to talk about the uh, new asylum plans being pushed by Priti Patel that day. Uh, she was invited on as the director of a detention charity. Uh, what it was not made clear to viewers was she was a Labour candidate in the 2019 election uh, in Arundel and South Downs, out there every day. Uh, extolling the virtues of Jeremy Corbyn, who she described as honest, principled, uh, and with integrity. Uh, and uh, we pointed out that honesty certainly is a virtue. Uh, it's just perhaps one that broadcasters are yet to discover. This whole discussion reminds me of one of our earlier expert activists we did a, a good few months ago, um, last year. 
um, who was um, a doctor, an everyday doctor, talking from his GP surgery about, I don't know, Tory plans about lockdown or something like that, and, and popped up on the BBC. He was a man by the name of Paul Williams. Now, the, the audience weren't told that he was a former Labour MP, or indeed standing to become then Labour's police and crime commissioner uh, in, the, in, in the Tees Valley. But, but, but now, of course, he's the Hartlepool Labour candidate. So do, if you have a chance, look back at our ex- expert activist archive, because it turns out that just one day, one of them might be a by-election candidate, as has turned out in this case. <laughs> I think there's part of me that would respect the BBC for the duration of the Hartlepool by-election that just continued referring to him as a a GP (laughs) rather than a (laughs) Labour candidate. Speaking of becoming the MP for Hartlepool, there's one individual who's very upset that he won't be becoming the MP for Hartlepool. And in fact, quite justifiably upset. This is, of course, a Labour councillor in the region by the name of Craig Hannaway. And what Craig Hannaway did after he heard about the stitch-up selection of one that we've discussed in previous episodes, where Paul Williams was parachuted in with no proper selection process, he complained about it to the party. He wrote one or two tweets saying that, hang on, shouldn't we have a, a fair selection process? And for that, he was booted out of the party. This guy who's been a long-standing Labour councillor in the region was kicked out of the party for questioning the stitch-up selection where they parachuted in this former failed MP turned PCC candidate turned MP candidate. I mean, the mind boggles, doesn't it? That the, the, Just the contempt that they have for the ordinary members of the association and basically just doing what Westminster wants. Of course, Dr. Paul Williams has been working hard to try and reclaim some credibility for the forthcoming by-election. Uh, and by that, we mean he's deleted about seven or eight years' worth of tweets, finally getting rid of the infamous Tory MILF's tweet, as well as uh, one uh, about Saudi Arabia, very favourable after, funnily enough, Saudi Arabia paid for an MP trip abroad for him. Uh, so they're now gone. Paul Williams better hope no one has a record. We can't promise anything. We'll see how that goes. Kagi, are you sure the Saudi one's gone? Because I think he deleted back eight years of tweets, but it didn't quite cover 2018 oh. when he was still an MP, of course, and, and went over to Saudi Arabia and said, my view of the country has changed. It is a progressive beacon. It's a wonderful country, never mind um, all of their stonings and, of course, killing of Saudi children, of uh, Yemeni children. I'm soaring up um, dissidents. I find this Saudi uh, uh, loving from Paul Williams quite interesting as an example of sort of how much you can get away with when you're elected in a in a proper general election with a swathe of a load of new MPs because journalists just don't have the time to go through this back catalogue. In fact, uh, in the two years from 2017 to 19 that Paul Williams was an MP in Stockton South. We wrote one article about him, and it was about his Saudi-funded trip. And, of course, now, uh, you know, parties really need to make sure that their by-election candidates are cleaner than clean because the entire lobby has about, you know, a month or two now to comb through every little thing Paul Williams has done. But the interesting thing about his Saudi tweet, about his effusive praise of this despotic regime, was it was the same year as the Khashoggi murder... I mean, that's really when a lot of Western opinion changed around uh, Saudi Arabia, but not Paul Williams. A story that was in the national newspapers and I knew would be very popular with our readers was about a QC, Rebecca Sabin Clare, who was jogging with her dog along 
the Thames when her dog savaged Freddie Mercury, the seal that had been entertaining for weeks, uh, locals. It was quite a tragedy, and um, you know the 10-month-old 10, 10 pup had to be put down as a result of the injuries. Rebecca Sabin-Claire, a QC, then went to Shillings, the aggressive uh, lawyers, and tried to muzzle the press. She claimed that she had a right to privacy. Um, fortunately for her, we got hold of that, and uh, the papers, the New York Post, the Mail Online started and covered it, and now everybody knows her name. If only she had muzzled the dog instead of trying to muzzle the press, she wouldn't have got into so much trouble and the puppy would still be alive. And you'd think it wouldn't have been such a big story for everyone if she hadn't gone after the press in the first place, if she hadn't tried to cover it up. It's so often usually the bigger part of the story is the cover-up rather than the unfortunate event. Yeah, I spoke to one national newspaper editor who was very annoyed about the whole uh, I want my privacy, that had treated it much more sympathetically if she hadn't tried to do that. But, funny enough, rich and powerful people do think they can buy their way out of bad publicity. And often do. And also, sorry, am I the only one who lives in London who didn't know there was a seal called Freddie Mercury flapping around the Thames uh, until, until very recently? I, that's amazing! How many seals are there in the Thames? I'm not, I'm not going to make the Another One Bites the Dust reference I made earlier in the week. That would be a cheap gag. But I will ask, what is it with, you know, sort of very professional uh, lawyers and QCs and, and animal abuse? I mean, Julian Moore must be delighted that he's no longer the number one hated uh, lawyer in London. Well, it's a sense of entitlement, isn't it? And that they know that people do succeed sometimes with doing these kind of manoeuvres. So she just pulled a sort of QC version of um, a Karen. Can I speak to your manager? <laughs> For the moment, it looks like Rebecca Sabin Clare is uh, safe in her profession. But one person who uh, sadly lost his job this week was John Burko. Uh, the SNP MP Neil Gray stood down to fight the Holyrood elections in May. But one of the more archaic pieces of parliamentary ritual uh, is that MPs cannot resign. Uh, They can only be sacked, and they can only be sacked if they take a fee-paying position within the royal household. Uh, There are two positions MPs can be appointed to, uh, and uh, the Manor of Northstead is one of them. Neil Gray took this position in order to leave the Commons, unfortunately booting out its previous incumbent, John Burko, uh, and of course uh, meaning that uh, the previous Speaker of the House of Commons no longer has any sort of public-facing role in the UK. Hallelujah. Speaking of bye-byes, it is time to say goodbye to our Tom Howard, who leaves us for a new upstart media operation called GB News. We wish him all the best. I thought I'd better say some nice words about Tom, uh, because he'd be in a position to say nasty words about me if I don't. But Tom was the first person I've ever headhunted. I saw him on Politics Live when he was a student uh, doing a clip about campaigning for votes for 12-year-olds, which was obviously uh, a satirical take on votes for 16-year-olds. I thought that guy has something about him. It turns out what he had about him was that he had been practising in front of the camera in his bedroom on YouTube since he was 12 years old. He is not a natural uh, on, on television, I'm afraid. As I can tell you, we have to do loads of takes after takes, but he is very good when he's on television. And that is why he has become the youngest person ever to appear on Question Time since 
Chatso Charlie Kennedy. At 23 years of age, he was on there, did a barnstorming pro-Brexit question time. And the bad news is, uh, that means, given he's 23, and uh, we'll be looking at him on TV for another 40 years at least. Let that sink in. Um, he's had a few scoops while he's been here. You know, uh, I'm sure Beth Rigby's going to enjoy working with him. We have to remember that it was him who uncovered the Sky News, Kay Burley, Beth Rigby party. Uh, he has, and we always like to get scouts here, been responsible for the ending of a career of a party leader, a national party leader. He got rid of the Welsh Conservative Party leader for a locking boozing session. Ironic of that. Um, he's, he's, he's got a few uh, issues, and I have discussed this with Andrew Neil, his new boss, uh, when he was asking me about him. A certain difficulty in getting in on Monday mornings and Friday mornings, to be honest. So, as a leaving present, Tom, I've got you this. It's a skateboard. It will let you get in from Nine Elms <laughs> to Paddington, double quick, and provide you with the exercise you crave. So, uh, a useful way to see you on your way. Amazing. I can think of all of the presents that I was thinking that that might have been with regard to sort of waking up in time. A skateboard was the last thing on my mind, but I will, I will treasure well, that. I, I might blow your mind here, Tom, when I say I don't think Paul has a huge amount of props to hand. <laughs> 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 it was a loose metaphor, but it worked. It's been a, a real privilege to work with Tom every afternoon for the last two years. Uh, and in a way, I don't think he's going to be leaving us for very long because uh, of course, I think we're going to see him even more now he's on the telly every single day. Uh, he'll be uh, almost better suited, I think. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it immensely. And of course, I can't wait to see how... Uh, it plays out Tom sharing those brand new number nine Downing Street briefing rooms alongside the like of Beth Rigby because he has so many friends in the broadcasting media. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's been the uh, it's been the best grad scheme anyone could possibly uh, want. I mean, being able to dive straight into Westminster immediately at the age of what was I, twenty three. Um, and and be joining the lobby, having the numbers of cabinet ministers in my phone. I mean, diving right in at the deep end was the most incredible experience. And, for, and to be able to do that for three years, albeit the last one of those in the middle of a pandemic, um, has been the most <laughs> tremendous honour. And I can't thank you enough, Paul, for, for the, all of the opportunities that have been afforded to me in this role. It's, it's been absolutely incredible. And obviously, um, Calgary be, uh, being there for the last um, year as well has been absolutely tremendous. And I, I, I can only see Gita going from strength to strength in the future. Well, thank you very much. And on that note, thank you to everyone who has been watching and or listening this week to this week's episode of Guido Talks. This is the last in the series. Parliament is going into recess and so is Guido Talks. But no doubt it'll be back without me, but with the familiar faces, the other familiar faces from Guido that you've come to know and love. Um, so do remember to subscribe on YouTube, to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, to hit the notification bell, to be reminded about Guido Talks when it makes its triumphant return after recess. Thanks for watching.